I want to begin today's discussion about the calendar and ultimately the church calendar by reading an article by Matthew Bunsen titled, The Day the Church Altered Time. On the night of October the 4th, 1582, the citizens of Spain and its colonies, Portugal, Poland, and most of Italy went to bed and woke up ten days later. The peculiar event was not some medieval miracle, but was, in fact, an effort by the church to bring about a badly needed change to time. Having decreed months before that a reform of the calendar was essential for the good of Western civilization, Gregory VIII, now that, this was 1572 to 1585, would have been his, the time he was pope, implemented a new calendar on the night of October the 4th, the next day, part of the massive fix of the Julian calendar was not counted as October the 5th, but rather as October the 15th, 1582. The calendar reform proved one of the most important and impressive accomplishments for Europe, uh, uh, excuse me, for the progress of Europe during the whole Renaissance. The problem has always been the fact that a year cannot contain neatly organized days or months. Put simply, the interval between successive vernal equinoxes uh, is 365.2424 days. It is approximately 11 minutes less than 365 and a fourth days. At the same time, the synodic period of the moon that is, the time between each full moon or new moon is around 29 and a half days, so that 12 months add up to only about 354 days. A calendar that incorporates both the movements of the sun and the moon thus becomes quite a challenge, and people of many civilizations have certainly given it their best shot. The most influential, not to mention widely adopted, effort to solve the dilemma was the Julian calendar, introduced by Julius Caesar in 45 B.C. to replace the long-standing Roman calendar that had grown hopelessly inaccurate by the use of the lunar year and, the, uh, uh, and month. His idea, with the help from uh, Synogenes, an Alexandrian astronomer, was to create a solar calendar with months of fixed lengths. Rather than try to introduce a gentle change, Caesar instituted what became uh, called the year of confusion by adding 90 days to the year to realign the months of the Roman calendar with the seasons. The first, you th we think daylight savings time is hard. <laughs> um, the first Julian year commenced with January 1, 46 B.C., and the 708th year from the foundation of the city. The result was that the average length of the Julian calendar was now 365 and a quarter days. To account as best it could for the subtle but important deviation in the passage of time, every fourth year included an intercalary day, that is a, a day that was inserted, to maintain uh, synchrony between the calendar year and the tropical year. Caesar organized the first, third, fifth, seventh, ninth, and eleventh months, that is January, March, May, July, September, and November to have 31 days, 
and the other months 30, excepting February, which in common years should have, had, should have only 29 days, but every fourth year 30 days. To keep himself even with his illustrious predecessor, Emperor Augustus added an extra day to August to have as many days, in, so it would have as many days as July, which had been named after the first Caesar. So a day was taken from February and given to August. Uh, this was to prevent three months, uh, in, in order to prevent three months straight of 31 days, September and November were reduced to 30 days, and October and December were assigned 31 days. A lot of politics. The additional day every fourth year was added to February, the shortest month. In modern calendars, of course, the intercalary day is still added to February, but as the 29th. Now, the Julian calendar remained in use throughout the entire history of the Roman Empire. The church naturally adopted it in the development of the liturgical calendar, Easter was placed on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal or spring equinox. And the equinox is when the sun is kind of, kind of in each hemisphere, the length of day and night is about the same in the northern and southern hemisphere. Obviously, then, the calculation of the equinox assumed considerable and understandable importance. If the equinox was wrong, then Easter was celebrated on the wrong day and the placement of most of the other observances such as uh, the starts of Lent and Pentecost, would also be an error. As the Julian calendar was far from perfect, errors did indeed begin to creep into the keeping of time. Because of the inherent imprecision of the calendar, the, the calculated year was too long by 11 minutes and 14 seconds. The problem grew only worse with each passing year as the equinox slipped backwards one full day on the calendar every 130 years. For example, at the time of its introduction, the Julian calendar placed the equinox on March 25th. By the time of the Council of Nicaea in 325, the equinox had fallen back to March 21st, and by 1500, the equinox had shifted by 10 days. The ten days were of increasing importance also to navigation and to agriculture, causing severe problems for sailors, merchants, and farmers whose livelihoods depended upon precise measurements of time and seasons. At the same time, throughout the Middle Ages, the use of the Julian calendar brought with it many local variations and peculiarities that are uh, the constant source of frustration to historians. For example, many medieval ecclesiastical records, financial transactions, and the counting of dates from the feast days of saints did not adhere to the standard Julian calendar, but reflected local adjustments, and so not surprisingly, confusion uh, was the result. Now, the church was aware of the inaccuracy and I'm referring here to the Roman Catholic Church, and I would remind you that prior to the Reformation, this is our history. Uh, we have a division, of course, with the Reformation, but historically uh, this was the, 
what was looked to as as the church and as uh, those who had influence over the culture. By the end of the 15th century, there was widespread agreement among church leaders that not celebrating Easter on the right day, the most important and solemn event of the calendar, was a scandal. And so, I love this uh, name, not that I love the popes, but Pope Sixtus IV. I just... There's something wrong about that. <laughs> um, he's uh, 1471 to 1484, made the first effort to reform the calendar, hiring the astronomer Johann Mueller, who unfortunately was murdered soon after that. Uh, as the work of other astronomers could not gain universal acceptance owing to the problems of competing national interest and varying opinions, imagine that, the church remained the best chance of promulgating a definitive solution to the growing crisis. Uh, so Pope St. Pius V introduced a new breviary and missal. Those are prayer books uh, and devotional books. Uh, in 1570, in keeping with the mandate of the Council of Trent, and both of the new texts included adjustments to the lunar tables and the leap year system. The problem of Easter, however, remained, as did the basic difficulties with the Julian calendar. In 1563, the Council of Trent had approved a plan in principle to restore the date of venal equinox to that of 325 and to install the needed changes to the calendar to make the calculation of Easter more accurate. Italian astronomer and doctor uh, Luigi Lilius proposed a solution in his ambitious work titled Compendium of the New Plan for the Restoration of the Calendar. He suggested a slow 10-day correction to amend the temporal drift uh, since Nicaea and a more careful application of the leap day. Lilius died in 1576, but his brother presented his theories to the one person who could do something about them, and that was the Pope. So Cardinal, I'm not sure, I'm sure I'm going to mangle this name, I looked it up, but Ugo Buno Compagni had been elected Pope Gregory VIII on May 13, 1572 as successor to Pope Pius, and he was determined to fix things once and for all. Happily receiving the manuscript, the Pope appointed a commission to investigate solutions he placed at its head a Jesuit mathematician and astronomer named Christoph Clavius. The basic ideas of Lilius were adopted, but Clavius preferred that any correction should take place in one sweeping move rather than a gradual implementation. The commissioner's recommendations were then presented to the Pope and were promulgated by the pontiff in the papal bull or publication uh, that was signed February 24, 1582. Like Julius Caesar before him, the Pope agreed that small adjustments were no longer viable. Instead, he decreed that Clavius's approach should be followed. Ten days would be removed from the calendar, so October 4th was followed by October 15th. With one act, the venal equinox of 1583, and those that followed would occur around March the 20th, a date much closer to that of the Council of Nicaea. To overcome the challenge of losing, this is uh, some interesting uh, thinking through this, 
In order to overcome the challenge of losing one day every 130 years, remember about 11 minutes and 14 seconds that adds up, the new calendar omitted three leap years every 400 years so that, so that century years were leap years only when divisible by 400. Using this method, 1,600 and 2,000 were leap years, but 1,700, 1,800, and 1,900 were not. Technically, the Pope could not decree that nations and kingdoms adopt the new calendar, but its value was noted immediately in repairing centuries of inaccuracy on the part of the Julian calendar. The new calendar was first uh, inaugurated in Spain, uh, Portugal, Spanish colonies in the New World, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and most of Italy. The Holy Roman Empire followed and then the rest of the Catholic world, France, deployed the new calendar in December of 1582. A little bit more here. Had the reform occurred a century before, of course, it would have been much easier to implement across all of what was then a united Christendom, as it was in a post-Reformation Europe. Uh, the new uh, computations were greeted with suspicion in the lands that were no longer Catholic. Protestant Germany adopted the calendar slowly. Prussia accepted it in 1610, while the rest of the Protestant states decreed it only in 1700. The English, especially during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, 1558-1603, rejected any thought of adopting a calendar created under the name of a pope and remained long suspicious that this was some Catholic plot. Consequently, even as anti-Catholic bigots in the English Isles lampooned the popes as enemies of progress, they were ten days behind everyone else in, the Western, in Western Europe for over 150 years. And after the leap year of 1700, they were 11 days behind. <laughs> the English compounded the dating dilemma further by celebrating New Year not on January 1st, but according to the older custom of March 25th. Remember, that was equinox. As the American colonies adhered to the English system, they shared in the temporal displacement. Americans now celebrate uh, the birth of George Washington on February 22nd, 1732, according to the Gregorian calendar. However, according to the English reckoning, he was born on February the 11th, 1731, or 32, excuse me. Acknowledging at last that the continued use of the Julian calendar and celebrating the year of uh, the new year on March 25th were, quote, attended with diverse inconveniences, the British Parliament passed the calendar, the New Style Act, in 1750. The new year would begin on January 1st rather than on March 25th, and time would be counted according to the Gregorian calendar. The act went into effect on September the 2nd, 1752, and the next day was decreed as September the 14th, 1782. Russia and the Eastern Orthodox churches rejected the new calendar and continued to use the Julian calendar and the calculations for Easter. The Gregorian calendar was accepted as the civic calendar in Russia only after the Russian Revolution in 1917. 
The Eastern Orthodox continue to use a revised Julian calendar with the exception of the Finnish Orthodox Church, which adopted the Gregorian calendar. The Gregorian calendar is the most widely used calendar in the world today. So, I found all that interesting. I uh, remember reading, I think, Jonathan, you still reading the book on the Mississippi flood? No? I, Mary Nell and I read the book on the uh, 1927 uh, flood of the Mississippi River, and I thought, well, that's going to be a, just an interesting kind of local story, but it, it just had such huge political implications because of the major... We could relate to that if you think about Katrina and New Orleans and how it affects politics and all these debates among engineers. Well, you see this in the calendar. Uh, all the, there's political implications. There are implications for, for the different industries and different interests arguing for different ways to do this. So uh, nothing is simple. Um, I had a history teacher. That was kind of his mantra for everything we did. Uh, and I majored in history. Was He always began every semester. Nothing is simple. And that's, that's certainly true. All right, now on to the church calendar. Let's see if we can run through this a little more quickly or, or get through this today. Um, uh, the room looks a bit different today. looks a little fuller. Uh, not so much because of the number of people, but because of the way it's decorated. Uh, in a few weeks, all this will be gone again. It'll be put up in the attic and wait again for next year. And the room will feel a little different. The color will change, our liturgical color, from purple to white, and then back to green again. And then uh, we will go from Advent to Christmas to what's called ordinary time. The church has established a rich liturgical calendar marked by colors and by themes and by seasons that are all related to the life and the work of Christ. Now, the church did not invent the idea of a calendar, but the church does have a calendar. Perhaps you have your own calendar on the wall or in your phone or computer where you mark important events like birthdays or anniversaries that recur, but also uh, current things, meetings and so forth. The calendar helps you remember, it helps you organize, it helps you plan. If your personal calendar is like mine, it fills up pretty fast. Many of the events are one-time occasions. The church calendar is cyclical and repetitive, and it is so for a good reason. Now, I want to say up front, I think you all know this, the calendar is not inspired, but certainly God has told us to do everything decently and in order. Wristwatches and clocks are not inspired either, but we use them because they're really handy. And they're helpful. And that's a, a way of bringing order to life. Um, it, it not only, the church calendar not only marks time and events, it's also designed to teach. It's also de designed to inculcate the story of the gospel into our lives. Each annual repetition should take us deeper and deeper into the life of Christ. Like the first creation, God brings order out of chaos he made the world, for example, to have seasons and rhythms that we, uh, that is, as we march through time. The church calendar helps us make some sense out of our journey as Christians. 
The changing seasons of the year also provide us with recurring opportunities to celebrate, to give thanks, to reflect, to remember, to look forward. The the Christian church, following earlier Jewish tradition, has long used the seasons of the year as an opportunity for festivals, for holidays, for sacred times that are set apart for the worship of God. Uh, While the Jewish celebration revolves around the exodus from Egypt, the Christian church year focuses on the life and the ministry of Christ. The sequence of festivals from Christmas to Easter become an annual spiritual journey, if you will, for worshipers. The rest of the church year provides an opportunity for us to reflect upon the meaning of the coming of Jesus, upon his commission to his people, and his commission of his people to be a light to the world. Many churches in the Protestant tradition don't celebrate uh, in any deliberate or sustained way the various seasons of the church year uh, beyond perhaps Christmas and Easter. However, the observance of the seasons of the church year has a long history in the life of the Christian faith. In the Old Testament, the concept of sacred time became a vehicle for teaching the faith. Um, as, a congreg- as the congregation moves through the church calendar, they are presented in an organized way with an opportunity to talk about and reflect upon our faith. And so it's important also for children, as they become aware of, that, of the context of the covenant community, uh, that there is a celebration of those things that are important in the faith. And again, the idea of repetition inculcates these things into us. They become traditions, and obviously we don't want just the traditions of men. Apart from Scripture, that's condemned if all we're doing is tradition. But traditions that are rooted in Scripture, traditions that are rooted in the teaching of the Bible, are good things. We just call those good habits. Here we are again, doing the same thing again. Doing, we come to the Lord's table every week as a habit. The whole liturgy of the worship service is a habit. It's to, to inculcate it in us and fix it as a pattern of our thinking and of our living. Now, um, most of the church calendar is spent in what is called ordinary time, uh, usually marked by the color green. We just finished... Last Sunday, uh, today the color has been changed to purple as we begin a new church year and we begin the Advent season. But we should not simply think of this uh, ordinary time in the common sense of that word, in the ordinary sense of the word ordinary. Um, The word has reference to that uh, defining quality of God as the divine orderer of creation. It means that the time is ordered rather than chaotic. By identifying periods of the year through a calendar, the church has been an instrument in marking the work of God like a watch marks time. Watches don't create time. In that sense, they don't tell time. They, they reflect time. They're a, a way of us measuring and marking something else that is happening. Um, and so... Um, by identifying these, uh, excuse me, uh, ordinary time does, does not mean ho-hum time, 
but rather it is a time to reflect on how God intervenes in the world and brings His divine presence into the chaos. It is a time for us to break from all the preparation and celebration of other feasts. Aren't you glad? Don't you enjoy the feast and celebration, but aren't you also glad when everybody goes home and you kind of finally get rid of all that rich food and and you start your diet and you put up all the stuff and you it's nice to have a break and you'll look forward to the next celebration but celebrating is hard work and we need breaks and so ordinary time is a time for us to break from the preparation and celebration of the other feast and practice our faith and relationship with God in the calm if you will in the routine and ordinary way in addition to ordinary time there are five other major seasons of the church year to draw that draw our focus toward preparing and then celebrating the two great gifts of God to humanity. The incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ and then his death and resurrection, the act that brought about our salvation. Unlike the secular calendar, the liturgical calendar considers both Christmas and Easter to be seasons, not just individual days. The 12 days of Christmas are very real and more than simply the basis for that annoying song. That's just a personal commentary there. (laughs) Um, Christmas season closes with the Feast of Epiphany. The Feast of Easter is also uh, historically celebrated for nine days. Thus, the eight days after Easter should be celebrated with the same vigor as Easter Sunday itself, uh, and also called Eastertide or Easter season in the church, continues through the Feast of Pentecost. We should be familiar with the preparation periods for those feasts, which are Advent and Lent, which precede those two major celebrations of Christmas and Easter. We should be familiar with the preparation periods, uh, then, uh, of Advent and Lent that precede these celebrations of God's action in the world by going uh, round and round, preparing for and then celebrating the great actions of God in the world and and keeping in mind the presence of God that keeps order in the chaos in the the in-between times. These seasons really can never be exhausted of their meaning. Here we are again, Advent. We need to think about it in different ways, in new ways, not um, because the meaning's already there. We're not creating new meaning. We're just discovering new meaning. It's already there. Uh, Each cycle should add to our depth of understanding. And so let me just mention these various things that are on the calendar here. Um, Advent, which of course we began today, it's the that season is the theme is the anticipating the coming of the Lord. Advent begins on the fourth Sunday before Christmas and ends on the day before Christmas. Thus, it begins. Uh, it varies from year to year. There's a different number of days between the first Sunday of Advent and Christmas Day. In most churches, the colors are purple or blue, which indicate royalty. Uh, We're anticipating the coming of the king. 
Advent consists then of the four Sundays, as we said, preceding Christmas. If December 24th is a Sunday, uh, which it's not this year, it's December 25th is a Sunday. Uh, but if if the what we call Christmas Eve, if, if if December 24th is on a Sunday, then it is the fourth Sunday in Advent until sundown, when the liturgical day begins, <clears throat> and then it's Christmas Eve. Just a little note to yourself there. So, Christmas, of course, the theme is celebrating the nativity or birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of God. Uh, Christmas season begins at sundown on December 24th and ends at sundown on January the 5th. Those are the 12 days of Christmas. In most churches, the decorations are white to represent the angels who announce the birth of Jesus. Uh, December 25th is Christmas Day, of course, commemorates the nativity of Jesus Christ. January 1st um, commemorates uh, the circumcision of Jesus, uh, where he was given his name. The Christmas season, as we said, well, I already mentioned that. So, Epiphany, the general topic of Epiphany season is Jesus' manifestation of himself as God. The word Epiphany is, is Greek for manifestation. And so that ends the Christmas season. The arrival of the three magi. Uh, is traditionally remembered during this time, and that that symbolizes the recognition. The shepherds represent uh, Israel, uh, recognize you know coming to worship Christ. But then, when the three magi come, they represent the Gentile world, uh, who now are coming and bowing before Christ and acknowledging Him to be the King. In most churches, Bible readings and sermons during this time of the year deal with Jesus' identity. Um, beginning with his baptism. Epiphany season begins on the Epiphany, which is January the 6th, and ends on the day before Lent. Mardi Mardi Gras. Um, It has grown in popularity since I was a kid. I grew up in Louisiana, and pretty much the celebration of Mardi Gras was limited to South Louisiana, and it it wasn't very much... Christian about it that I recall, and I'm pretty sure there still isn't. <clears throat> it was pretty much a hedonistic, raucous event, um, but marketers have gotten a hold of it and expanded it now, so many other places uh, also celebrate Mardi Gras in a less raucous way, usually. But its roots lie in the Christian calendar as the last hurrah, uh, not meant to be in a in a sinful way, but the idea was that this is before Lent, before Ash Wednesday, and that's why the enormous party uh, ends abruptly at midnight on Tuesday. What is less known about Mardi Gras is its relation to the Christmas season, uh, though, the ordin- though the ordinary time interlude known in many culture, Catholic cultures as carnival. Carnival comes from the Latin word meaning farewell to the flesh. So Mardi Gras literally means, who knows, Fat Tuesday. Uh, That's in French. The name comes from the tradition of slaughtering and feasting upon a fattened calf on the last day of Carnival. Um, The day is also known as Shrove Tuesday. Uh, To to shrive means to hear uh, or confess 
We also commonly call it Pancake Tuesday. Um, I don't really know how that tradition, but, but it's the same idea. You're about to start this period of fasting, and so it's, uh, let's have one last meal together. Let's indulge this one, go ahead and have a, you know, something we really enjoy here. Uh, and I would assume pancakes are a whole lot easier than a fatted calf. Um, I don't know. We <clears throat> Uh, Jacob is our chef here in the church now. Maybe he can work on a fatted calf this year. Um, so um, that's why we have we we do that. We celebrate that, and we'll talk about some other things that happen in association with that as well. Let uh, the theme is Jesus when he retreats to the wilderness. Remember, all this is compressed time. Obviously, we have the life of Jesus takes place basically over a three-year time, and we're compressing this on the calendar into a year. So uh, there's not a claim here that these are literally the times and when all these things happen, but they're placed in different in, in logical sequence, though. And so the 40 days of, of Jesus in the wilderness is what is being commemorated in the season of Lent. Lent, again, is the 40-day period before Easter. It begins on Ash Wednesday. We skip Sundays when we count the 40 days because Sundays commemorate the resurrection. Lord's days are always feast days, even during a 40-day fast. So it's, it's, a, it's a break. Lent begins, um, let's see, excuse me. Uh, Lent is a season of fasting and penitence and preparation for Easter. It literally just means spring. What Lent means. It's a, a Middle English term. It commemorates again the 40 days spent in the wilderness. The colors, usually purple or blue, again, again anticipating preparation for the triumphal entry, the coming of the King. Um, now, a word about Ash Wednesday. It's the seventh Wednesday before Easter Sunday, and it's the first day of the season of Lent. Remember, I'm not going to go into all this. Easter is always on a different day because of the calendar we were talking about and how it's calculated so it falls on a different day each year. But then that's used to measure these other things. When does Lent start? It begins uh, you know, on that the seventh Wednesday before Easter, and it's the first day of the season of Lent. Uh, its name comes from the ancient practice of placing ashes on the worshippers' heads uh, or foreheads as a sign of humility before God. We get the idea in the Old Testament of sackcloth and ashes, ashes uh, indicating death, mourning, sorrow, uh, the, the sacrifice, a symbol, again, of mourning and sorrow. Um, it not only prefigures the mourning at the death of Jesus, but also places the worshiper in a position of realizing the consequences of sin. There's debate among Protestants about the appropriateness of the season of Lent. I've have advocated for it. I, I think it's never bad for us to have a time where we say, you know, we need to just think about what Jesus did for us, uh, to think about our sins, to think about just what he res rescued us from. The idea here is not morbid introspection. The idea isn't to be beat up, but it is to, to not forget what he did for us. And really, we do that every time we come to the Lord's table, when we're when we're celebrating a death, the body and blood of Jesus, we have to begin with our sin. 
That's why he died, is to take our sins. And if we're just carefree and casual and, and don't give that any thought, we're not going to appreciate the joy that comes from being saved from those sins, being rescued. And so think of uh, this Lenten season as, as somewhat similar to what we do even every Lord's Day at the table, except over a period of 40 days, we're anticipating this extra special celebration of the resurrection we call Easter or Resurrection Sunday is what I prefer. Um, every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection, but again, it's appropriate to have this special focus and remembrance in this cycle. So then we have what's called Holy Week, that is the week leading up to Easter. Um, the Holy Week um, is the last week of Lent. In most churches, the colors... Uh, are red that symbolize the blood and, and the death of Jesus. And then, of course, uh, we end up removing all decorations on Good Friday, and uh, the color is black to remember the death of Christ. Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday, these are special days during Holy Week. Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday commemorates the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Monday, Thursday, which again we have, that's the night we usually had the, the meal that the elders and deacons prepare and serve to the congregation. That's to commemorate the foot washing of Jesus. We, uh, in a kind of a practical decision, uh, thought you might prefer that over foot washing, uh, an act of service. Okay? So, um, but we also commemorate the institution of the Lord's Supper, what's sometimes called the Last Supper. Uh, so the last, remember, Jesus does that just before he goes to the cross, and so that, too, is part of that Monday-Thursday service. It uh, commemorates foot washing, a remembrance of the betrayal of Judas, and institution of the supper. The term Monday, M-A-U-N-D-Y, uh, comes from the Latin word mandatum, uh, from which we get our English word mandate, uh, from the verb that means to give, to entrust, or to order. And the term is usually translated commandment from John's account of this Thursday night. Uh, according to the fourth gospel, as Jesus and the disciples were eating their meal together, what we call the Last Supper, um, before Jesus was arrested, and he washes the disciples' feet and has the meal and as they walked out into the night toward Gethsemane, Jesus taught his disciples a new commandment, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. You also ought to love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So again, that's part of Monday, Thursday. Good Friday, of course, is a remembrance of the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, and the death and burial of Jesus Christ. Holy Saturday is the Sabbath on which Jesus rested in the grave. Um, Easter, uh, of course, celebrates the resurrection of the Lord. Um, it, uh, the season begins Easter Day and ends on Pentecost. In most churches, the color, again, is white, uh, representing uh, again, angels that uh, announce the resurrection. And then Pentecost is a Jewish festival that falls on the 50th day of Passover, 
on, on Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection, which was ten days after Jesus had ascended into heaven, the eleven apostles and other believers were gathered together in one place when they were suddenly empowered by the Holy Spirit uh, to preach the gospel. Uh, they spoke in tongues so that everyone heard the gospel in their own language. So this is the, the opening up of the gospel to the whole world. And so Pentecost is celebrated by Christians as the birthday of the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, the season after Pentecost, which is basically from Pentecost until last week, or till today, I should say. Yesterday was still the season after Pentecost. Um, it is essentially the part of the year that is left over after everything has been accounted for and is also sometimes called kingdom tide or dominion tide or just ordinary time. Uh, this is the time that's focused on the church fulfilling the Great Commission. The season after Pentecost lasts from the day after Pentecost to the day before Advent, and the color is usually green, uh, symbolizing growth uh, in the life of the church. A um, couple of days that we might remember that are on the calendar. Trinity Sunday is the Sunday after Pentecost that just celebrates the Trinity. All Saints Day, November 1st, uh, the Christian Memorial Day on which all who have died uh, for their testimony of Jesus are remembered. The word Halloween itself is a, a contraction of All Hallows Eve, which is the original English language Christian term for All Saints Eve. Hallow is an old word for saint. And then Reformation Day, October 31st, uh, Protestants celebrate as an annual event. Next year is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And uh, that's the day Martin Luther posted his debate topics on the day uh, before All Saints Day, uh, probably to take advantage of the crowds that would be assembling to celebrate All Saints Day. So, I'm tired. That was uh, a lot of, to cover uh, there in terms of the calendar. But hopefully that gives a big overview and helps us remember and understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us these things that help us exercise dominion over the earth, help us order the things you've given us, helps us understand. We thank you for the church. We thank you for the lessons she, that the church teaches us. And help us, Lord, to be good students, and to learn and to remember. Bless us now as we go to worship in Christ's name. Amen.